I read an article recently about how in 2015, the Oxford Children's Dictionary dropped 50 words from its count. And all of these words were related to nature. They removed words like fern, willow, starling, in favor of terms like broadband and cut and paste. Well, some authors, world-renowned authors, were upset about this, and they decided to write an open letter to Oxford saying, like, what are you doing? How can you be removing these, these words that are teaching people, teaching children about the created world, and replacing them with these other technological words? And, and then they decided to go one step further, and one of these authors got together with an illustrator and wrote a book about it and said, okay, well, you're going to take those words away from children. I'm going to write a book about those words. And so they took those 50 words and they turned it into this beautiful book um, ex- introducing children to these aspects of nature that they might otherwise be missing out on. We're second week here into a summer series on reading between the lines where we're going to be taking a look at parts of the Bible that have maybe been kind of set aside or left behind with this idea that if we neglect the not obviously inspiring parts of the Bible in favor of the sure bets, the stories that we've heard a hundred times before, our view of the Bible and our view of the world itself narrows. And so last week, Graham got us started. I wasn't here, but I listened to the message, and it was a good one. If you didn't hear about the daughters of Zelophehad, you're going to want to listen to that podcast. It was really good. A story that probably very few of us are familiar with, but when I finished listening to it, I thought, We have to teach this story to our children. This has got to be a story that we regularly talk about. And I hope that that's going to be the case for a lot of the stories we explore this summer. We're going to reclaim some stories that don't get enough press. But before we get to this morning's story, as Mel has read for us, a little bit of background. Now, the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Kings tell the history of the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah in the generations following the death of of King David nearly 3,000 years ago. Now, we're familiar with a lot of stories from King David's life for sure. But as one generation took over from another, a serious leadership crisis developed. As you go through these chapters in Kings, it's one king who was devoted to God, but the next king was worshiping false idols and leading people astray. And then there would be a king that was devoted to God, and there would be another king who was leading them astray. Until finally you get to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, where we read that Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Like it was this downhill climb, and then this was the bottom. Ahab was the worst. That phrase, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, that repeats time and again. But this was the time when he did the most evil. Can you even imagine thinking this way about political leaders today? That the political leaders we have are worse than all that have come before them? He said, dripping with sarcasm. Like, so in one way, this is like some different culture and long ago, but there's this other way that's like, oh yeah, I know what that would be like. To think like things are just getting worse, and then they start getting a little better, and then they just get worse again. I can understand how people would feel that way. So maybe we can identify a little closer than we think. So the next chapter, 1 Kings 17, we're first introduced to Elijah the Tishbite, who would become one of the most revered of all Old Testament prophets. How revered, you ask? Well, 
There's a story in the New Testament where Jesus takes his three closest followers up onto a mountainside and his body is transfigured, it glows, it changes appearance. And, and two grand figures from the Old Testament stand beside Jesus to converse with him, one being Moses, obvious, and the second being Elijah. So Elijah's right there, Elijah, Moses, gathering with Jesus on this mountaintop. So Elijah was right up there. Elijah brings, uh, his ministry begins, the first time we read about him in chapter 17 here, he brings some bad news to the king, the political leader of the day. He says, you know what, things have hit an all-time low here. God is going to strike this land with a drought and a famine, and it's going to last for three years. But God takes care of Elijah in the midst of this. In verse 6, we read that ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from a brook. Now, I don't know. I mean, I've never been in a famine um, because I think like if a raven brought a chunk of meat and dropped it in my hand, I probably wouldn't eat it. But Elijah survived on this. God provided for Elijah in the midst of this famine. At the end of these three years, God tells Elijah that rain is on its way, and that leads to the famous story. Again, if you've been around church at all, you've heard about this confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're up on this mountaintop. God does... God lights the sacrifice on fire and proves that he is the one true God. And then Elijah gets afraid because everyone's upset about this contest. He flees. And then there's an equally famous encounter with God where he stands on a mountainside, but God doesn't appear to him in an earthquake or a fire or any of this stuff. He appears to him in a whisper, a gentle whisper. And God reminds him that there are still 7,000 faithful people in Israel. You may think you're alone, but there are actually 7,000 people who haven't bowed their knee to these false idols. And we're introduced to one of those people in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Now in one of the more unfortunate of biblical naming situations, the master and apprentice have names that are almost undistinguishable. This is a really confusing section of the Bible. We've got Elijah and Elisha. They're both doing very similar things, and they have very similar names. So Elijah continues on with his duties as a prophet until we get around to 2 Kings chapter 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. So basically Elijah's saying, all right, I got to go run this errand. You just stay put. But Elisha refuses. He's like, no way. I am not leaving your side. I got a sense that something significant is about to happen. So he follows him. And then uh, once again, Elijah says, okay, now I've got another errand to run. So yeah, seriously, just hang out here right now. I'm going to go. I'll come back later. Elisha's like, no, I'm not leaving you. So he follows him again. A third time, he's like, okay, seriously, I just have an errand. Just wait here. And Elisha's like, yeah, no, I haven't done it the first two times. I'm not doing it this time either. So he follows him. And uh, then we run into this exciting story of what happens next. Basically, um, while a a group of these prophets are looking on, Elijah takes his cloak off, and he snaps the Jordan River with his cloak, like, and then the Jordan River parts, and the two of them cross to the other side on dry ground. And then we pick up the story in 2 Kings 2, verse 9 to 13. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. 
Well, you've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. So his mentor, uh, his role model, his teacher has just been taken from him in this like wild escapade. And then all, this, all he has left of him is this cloak. And he's like, well, the last thing Elijah did with his cloak is snap the water. So he picks it up and the waters part again. And Elisha walks back across the Jordan River and takes up the mantle of prophetic leadership for Israel. So last week I was sitting at the dinner table and I was telling some kind of random story from my childhood and my son Jude said, how do you remember so many stories from when you were young? He's like, I'm afraid I'm not going to remember any of the things that are happening in my life. I'm just like, stories are great. We love telling good stories. And Elisha's life is actually packed with some really good ones. I'm going to tell you very briefly my two favorite stories from Elisha's life, which we're not actually going to talk about this morning, but I just can't, go, uh, can't give up the opportunity to talk about them. So we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 2. And uh, this is what we read. Uh, My first favorite story, 2 Kings 2, 23 to 25. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked on them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. So, okay, favorite story from Elisha's life, number one. I was thinking I could do like that for the sermon, but then I don't know what I'd say about it, so I won't say anything about it. So that's like at the beginning. That's shortly after the snapping of the water, and he's beginning his public ministry here. Um, My other favorite story from Elisha's life takes place later. So this one's going to be chapter 13, all right? So 2 Kings chapter 13. Uh, Flip ahead a little bit here. This is at the end of his life, and as you'll find out momentarily, this is actually slightly beyond the end of his life. So this is what we read in 2 Kings 13, verse 20 and 21. Elisha died and was buried. All right, so that should be the end of his story. You'd think he did a lot of great things. He called some bears from the woods, some other miracles that we'll talk about, and then he died. But that's not actually the end of his story because of what happens next. So Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones... The man came to life and stood up on his feet. And then the story just goes on talking about some other random thing. It's just like as if like that's not a big deal. Anyways, those are my two favorite stories from Elisha's life. But the story we're focusing on this morning comes in the middle of these two. And like Elijah before him, it takes place during a time of famine. Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was famine in that region. When some friends came to visit him, Elisha asked his servant to put on some stew. But it's a time of famine. There just isn't a lot of food to go around. A month or so ago, uh, we were away and stayed at an Airbnb in Niagara Falls. And as you often do when you stay at an Airbnb, you you go through the cupboards, right? Like, you want to see, what is there here? Like, is there salt and pepper? Is there tea and sugar? Like, do they have basic things? Did they maybe leave something else for me? A little, like, snack or treat? So you go through the cupboards. So this is the kitchen of the place you stayed at. And I'm going through, and I did find those things in some of the cupboards. And then I opened another cupboard, and I found this. 
Yeah, what? They're two plastic cups filled with some kind of yellow liquid loosely covered with saran wrap. And I'm like, yeah, that's sketchy. So I just shut the cupboard after I took a picture of it uh, and did not use it. So, I mean, maybe if it was a time of famine, maybe if I showed up at this place and there was no food to be had anywhere, I would be like, I don't know what this is, but I guess I'll drink it. Like, maybe I would. Because that's basically what happens in this story. So it's a time of famine. A bunch of people come over to visit Elisha. And he's like, I don't have anything for you. So they're like, we'll find something to eat. So they go out into the woods. They pick a bunch of stuff, some gourds. The Bible says they didn't even know what they were. They cut them up, throw them in a stew. And all of a sudden they're like, it must have been like a really bad stench. Because they're like, oh my gosh, this, this smells really bad. Something is off here. There's, there's death in the pot. This is bad news. And so what's happens? Uh, Elisha says to them, get some flour. So he puts some flour into the pot, and he says, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. So somehow adding this flour saved this, this wretched meal. Okay, so there's uh, uh, this famished group of prophets is fed as a result of the first culinary miracle. Uh, and then it quickly goes on, the narrative quickly goes on to another story. A, male came, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread. Give it to the people to eat. Elisha said. Uh, when I was reading this, I thought about this, uh, this time back. Oh, it was almost probably 20 years ago. We were very early. Uh, we had started our student church, the embassy, and, and we decided it would be cool to throw a Christmas banquet. We're like, we're going to throw like this fancy meal, and we'll have everyone come, and it'll be great. But we were like in our early 20s, and none of us had ever cooked for, well, really anyone, and uh, especially not a group of like, say, 50 people or something. So we're like, well, what are we going to do? There was like no Google at the time where you just say, how many potatoes for a group of 50 people? Uh, so my friend called his dad. He's like, dad, how many potatoes should I, how many pounds of potatoes should I make here? And his dad told him. So we made the potatoes, we made the whole meal, we served everything. And at the end of the night, we had like a full pot of leftover mashed potatoes. Like it was not, his dad wasn't even close. He had no idea. He just threw some random number out there, and we ended up cooking like 20 pounds extra of potatoes. I was like, we should mail these to your dad. We should just put them in a box, put your address on them, and say, you were wrong, right? Like, some people are just better at knowing how much food is required. So this guy brings some loaves of barley, and Elisha said, hey, servant, feed it to everyone. And the servant's like, oh, my gosh, you don't have a clue how much food it takes to feed a group of people. He's like, there's no way I can put these loaves of bread in front of 100 people. Like, it just doesn't work like that. But in a time of famine, as I was thinking about it, I mean, 20 loaves of bread for 100 people, I mean, it wouldn't be like a great meal, but at least everyone's getting something, right? Five people share a loaf of bread, I don't know. But Elisha answered, just give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. So through Elisha, God wants to teach his people about the importance of trusting in his ability to provide. A contemporary author, Parker Palmer, writes, whether the scarce resource is money or love or power or words, the true law of life is that we generate more of whatever seems scarce by trusting its supply and passing it around. Elisha's like, it's okay if this isn't enough food. Just pass it around because it will be enough. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And so I was thinking to myself, what is the moral of the story? Well, clearly the moral of the story is if you want to impress a crowd of people, make food appear out of nowhere. 
And so that's exactly what I'm going to do this morning. If you look under your pews, five of you are going to find a very exciting prize. Because I was in Michigan last week and I bought five boxes of sugary cereal that you cannot buy in Canada. And so if you look under your seat, oh, I see one. What do we got? Toy Story 4 cereal, Pop-Tart cereal, Mermaid cereal. There's two more somewhere. Don't be proud. Don't be healthy. Look under your seats. Chaos. Took over. Yes, we have powdered sugar donut cereal. And we have honey, sticky honey bun cereal. All right. This is just awesome. Okay, that's it. So you can stop looking. Okay, so clearly, like, that's the moral of this story, right? Make food appear out of nowhere, and people will love you. Because I can tell, like, you're all just, you love me this morning. Well, for almost 900 years, Elisha held the record for the most impressive food miracle. He fed 100 people with 20 barley loaves. And then along comes Jesus. All right, we're going to pick it up in John chapter 6, verses 5 to 10. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Uh, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. All right, so wonder what's going to happen here. Uh, We've got Elisha, who is given 20 barley loaves and performs this miracle to feed 100 people. Now, Jesus is given five small barley loaves. John makes sure to point out that they were small barley loaves and two fish, but they were also small fish. But Jesus has a crowd of 5,000. Now, 5,000 men. And so a lot of people will say, like, that's probably plus women and children. So what are we, 10, 15,000? Like, we don't even know. Some massive crowd of people. What's going to happen? This is exciting stuff. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now that is amazing stuff. Not only enough but more than enough. A few weeks ago, uh, Jude's baseball team, which I coach, is, uh, we were in a tournament. We made it to the final game of the tournament. And uh, we were playing a team that we had already faced in the tournament. We beat them, I think, like 9 nothing. It wasn't even. So we were just like, this is going to be easy. Well, at the end of the first inning, we're losing 4 nothing. We're like, oh, no. In the middle of the seventh inning, we play seven innings. We're, we're losing 7-1. to one. We're like, this game is pretty much over but we got to go and finish up. So we go out, and all of a sudden, our first guy walks. And we're like, ooh, and then we get a hit. And then another walk. And all of a sudden, another walk. And then a hit, and then a big hit, and then a walk. And all of a sudden, we come back, and we won the game with nobody out. 
And we walked it off, and it was just like this crazy celebration, and we're just like, man, like, see, things, miracles continue to happen. They continue to happen right there on the baseball diamond in London, Ontario. Jesus passes this food around, and not only is there enough food, but there's more than enough. They had outs to spare. They had baskets left over of food. Now, after people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Interesting, calling Jesus a prophet. Now, there is an obvious parallel between Elisha's miracle and Jesus' miracle. But the really interesting thing, if you go and read these random stories from the Old Testament, is that there's actually a number of parallels. You see, Elisha had this miracle where he had a woman um, who was, didn't have much food and she was very poor. And, and so he said, well, gather a bunch of jars and then take this little jar of oil and pour it into the jars. And it will just keep flowing until you run out of jars. And that happened. Which there was this time where Jesus was at a wedding and they ran out of wine. He said, it's okay, just start pouring the wine from these jugs of water. And the water turned into wine and it started overflowing um, all of the, the compartments they poured it into. There was this time Elisha raised a widow's dead son to life. And there was a time when Jesus raised a widow's dead son to life. And actually, it's really interesting. I went on to um, Google Maps here, and, and you'll see the locations where these widow's dead sons were raised to life. They were just like an hour and a half walk from each other, like really close by. There was a time when Elisha healed a man named Naaman of leprosy. And Jesus not only healed one man by leprosy, but he healed many people of leprosy. And oh, yeah. There was this time when if someone touched Elisha's dead bones, they would come to life. And then there's this story of how anyone who believes in Jesus receives new life. Not because of touching his bones, but because he was raised to life and gives life to all all of us who come after him. The beginning of the book of Hebrews makes this observation, and this is why it's important for us to to understand and read these random stories. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God was always doing something. He was always calling his people. He was always doing these miraculous things. But what God was doing and what he was beginning through the prophets reached its fulfillment in Jesus. And this feeding of the 5,000 plus was really the zenith of Jesus' popularity with the crowds. I mean, at this point, everyone was willing to follow him. But Jesus wanted none of it. So he snuck away to the other side of the lake. And when the crowds came and they found him, and they're like, hey, man, like, why'd you take off? This is what he responds. They say, Rabbi, when'd you get here? He says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Thomas Kelly writes that the deepest need of men is not food and clothing and shelter, important as they are. It is God. And Jesus declared to that same crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, the people started grumbling. Jesus had said something about being the bread that comes down from heaven, which, of course, made no sense to them because they knew his mother and father. He didn't come from heaven. He was born right here in our village. We remember it. 
And then Jesus ups the ante. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, if the best way to impress a crowd of people is to make food appear out of nowhere, then perhaps the best way to disperse a crowd of people might be to offer your flesh and blood as an appetizer. Because that's exactly what happened. That massive crowd of people who were adoring him started walking away. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many turned back and no longer followed him. I'm going to invite those who are serving communion to come to the front. There's this passage in 2 Kings 17 that kind of summarizes what God was doing in those days of Elisha. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. And you know what? Jesus' message began in a similar way. He said, repent. It's like the first word that he, that he kind of said, repent. Turn from this way of living and begin this way of living. Turn from this way of life, embrace this way of life. But instead of commands and decrees and laws, Jesus gave himself, establishing a new covenant between God and humankind. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus' life, this is what we read in chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I was reminded, and I'll close with this thought, of of a time when I was very early in my faith journey, and I wanted to pick up a book that would be challenging and inspiring to me, so I went to the local Christian bookstore, and I was just browsing the shelves, and I saw this book hungry for more of Jesus. And I was like, yep, that's about it. So I picked it off the shelf and and read it. And there's this line that the author says in this book, and I don't remember if it was a good book or not. But at one point he says, if you're hungry for more of Jesus, then come to the Lord's table often. Be diligent to keep the feast. There you will find the abundant life he longs to give you. This morning we have the Lord's table spread out in front of you. The author wasn't saying, have communion all the time, but he was saying, come to Jesus. He offers to feed you. He offers to quench your thirst. He offers to sustain you. So come to him often. Come to the table. Eat at his banquet table. And this morning, this is kind of what we're doing. There's bread here. There's juice here. We're going to come and take this bite, and and we'll remember what God was doing through his prophets all those years ago when he fed 100 people with 20 loaves of bread. And we'll remember what Jesus did as he fed a crowd of 5,000-plus with five small loaves and two fish. But what we really remember is that Jesus feeds all of our spiritual hunger by giving his life for us. So as the band plays, I invite you to come. Take the bread and the cup with you back to your seat.
and once everyone has had a chance to come forward, we'll share it together. If you're visiting with us this morning and this is something that would maybe be uncomfortable for you, no pressure at all. You can, you're welcome to just stay in your seat and use this time for some reflection. Once everyone has had a chance to come through, I'll come back and we'll share in the elements together. But come now. This morning we hold in our hands a piece of bread. We identify with the hunger that men and women down on through history have experienced. Not only physical hunger, but a spiritual hunger and a longing for union with God. We remember Christ's body broken for us. Because we're hungry, let's share this bread together in remembrance. Lord, teach us to come to you when we're hungry. Teach us to come to you when we have needs. Remind us that we can depend on you. In the days of Elisha, the covenant was law, command, decrees. In the days of Jesus, he said his blood was a new covenant for the forgiveness of sin, a covenant of grace. And so let's drink together, accepting the forgiveness and grace of God. Lord, when we're thirsty, remind us that you meet our needs. We give thanks for your sacrifice. We give thanks for your invitation, invitation to live life to its fullest. Amen.